This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 110, November the 30th, 1985. In our last session together, I discussed the fact of bureaucracy. I pointed out that whenever we delegate our responsibilities to some institution, we create a bureaucracy on a distant level. We have seen in modern times the growth of a vast federal bureaucracy simply because men have delegated the basic functions of the Christian man in health, education, and welfare to the state. The result has been deadly. There is no eliminating a bureaucracy as long as this delegation exists. I want to add something to what I said last time. I was in Washington last week for a conference, speaking to an audience made up predominantly of lawyers. Another speaker called attention to a very interesting fact which came from the office of a liberal U.S. senator, and the fact was this. If every church and every synagogue in the United States would take over the support of one needy family, the welfare problem in the United States would be eliminated. Now consider the implications of that. We have a vast bureaucracy, and that bureaucracy has as its purpose the care of the welfare people. In some instances, in some communities, the welfare officials at times have equaled the welfare recipients. That's not a normal situation, but it has existed. We can eliminate that vast expense of the bureaucracy and of welfareism if we take back welfare as Christians. One family per church. And there are many churches that could take over a number of families. This is reducing the problem to human dimensions, to Christian dimensions. And it also reduces the cost because the bureaucracy is the main consumer of funds in one cause after another. The solution is there. It is simply a question of whether or not we are interested in doing something about it. Today I want to go on to another subject for just a little while. I shall do this in connection with a book written by Chris Given Wilson and Alice Curtis, The Royal Bastards of Medieval England, published in London by Rutledge and Keegan Paul in 1984. This is a very interesting book, not because of all the bastards it deals with, the royal bastards in the medieval era in England, but primarily because of what it has to say about marriage. One of the problems that the early church faced was that marriage in the world then, outside of Israel, was hardly an institution that was morally a sound one. Moreover, marriage did not protect a wife because concubinage existed. When a man died, there was no way of knowing that the dead husband did not have a concubine on the side who was his legitimate heir together with her children. More than one person in the Roman Empire found herself thrown out into the street because the mistress and her children took over from the legitimate heirs. Of course, Theodora, the empress, changed all this with her reforms, which said that 
in terms of scripture, only marital sex was licit or legal, and all other forms were banned by law, and there could be no inheritance except in terms of the legitimate heirs, the wife and her children. These laws were, until recently, the basic law of the Western world. This is not to say that they were fully and perfectly applied. A key point at which the Church was never able to gain the victory over the surrounding cultures was as to inheritance. In pagan cultures, primogeniture prevailed, that is, heirship by the eldest son, who normally took all, who inherited the title, if there was one, and the property. Now this created a problem. It meant that as soon as the oldest son was old enough to have sense to understand anything, he knew that there was no way short of death that he could be disinherited. As a result, the eldest son was not amenable to discipline. He knew very early that he had his father over a barrel, that no matter what he did, he could not be disinherited. In biblical law, of course, what prevailed was a very limited primogeniture. It meant that, given normal circumstances, the eldest inherited a double portion over the other sons. He inherited this only if he and any of the sons, of course, who inherited the same apply to them, were godly. He could be totally disinherited or passed over for the double portion, which meant assuming care also of the parents and having a responsibility towards the rest of the family. The biblical form of inheritance put a premium on faith and character. The prevailing European system of primogeniture simply put a premium on being the firstborn. The result was, and still is to this day, a breach between the father and his eldest son. Recently I read the autobiography of one of the leading peers of England, his grandfather and father were, by his own recollection, not on speaking terms. Neither was he with his own father. And one of you who was in England not too long ago, Clint Miller, who lent me the book, in fact, reported not too long ago that this same duke was now not on speaking terms with his son. This is what the pagan system of primogeniture did. What the eldest son did was to sit around and wait for the father to die so he could take over everything and have total freedom. And at times he was not averse to giving his father a push into the grave. This is all relevant to the subject of the royal bastards of medieval England. In particular, this is the early and middle periods of the Middle Ages, in particular, England. What developed was this. The monarchs, the kings of England, could not depend upon their eldest son. For that matter, since sudden death was not uncommon through disease or warfare in those days, the second, third, or fourth sons, if there were as many as that, were about equally undependable because they were in the line of succession. 
they were ready to look forward to the death of their older brother before he got married and had children, as well as their father in due time. As a consequence of this, the kings of England in that era found that the only son they could depend upon was a bastard. And as a result, if they wanted close family ties, they had a mistress. The marriage with the wife was arranged. She was an important person who was married not because they had any liking for her or ever saw her usually before the marriage, but because it made for an important alliance. She would often come with a staff that was as much, if not more, interested in the home country and in acting as spies for the home country as they were in the country now of their residence. The consequences were ugly. It meant that the king had a very, very sorry situation. He had a family that was at times in actual warfare with him. The illegitimate sons were entirely dependent on the king for their advancement. They felt close to their king. For example, Henry II, one of the great kings of England, had a number of very important sons. Uh, Richard the Lionheart and John being the two best known. But of his four sons, who were legitimate, none could be depended on. All of them waged war against their father in an ugly fashion at one time or another. Only his oldest illegitimate son, Geoffrey, was always true to him. He had a number of illegitimate daughters as well. In fact, at a critical point, when the other sons came close to destroying the father, defeating him, and taking over the kingdom and the crown, it was Geoffrey, who had been made a bishop, who then left his see, gathered an army together, and in a series of brilliant maneuvers, defeated the enemy forces within England and secured the crown for his father. He was a bishop eight years, by the way, before he became a priest. He was finally virtually forced into the priesthood in order to eliminate him as a claimant to the throne. It was not too long before that bastards were actually made kings of England. The two notable instances are Harold and then his successor, William the Conqueror. Both were bastards. And so, at this point with Henry II, it was not altogether impossible for a bastard to gain the crown. There was a growing sentiment that it was not to be permitted and was to a degree against the law, but it was not out of the realm of possibility. Geoffrey was his father's mainstay. In the last battle between Henry and his sons, in which Henry lost, on that occasion, and on that occasion alone, Geoffrey refused to accompany his father in the negotiations with his half-brothers because, he said bitterly, he could not take it to see their, them humble their father. And he was afraid of his own violence on such an occasion. Geoffrey Plantagenet was a most remarkable man. 
It is interesting, too, how the kings very often, beginning, for example, with Henry I, took mistresses in various parts of the country and established their bastard sons and daughters around the map of England so that there was one in every key position because they knew that through their bastard sons and daughters they would have loyalty. They would of necessity be loyal. Their whole future depended upon him. An impure sexual behavior, and yet he left about a dozen bastards, and the reason was a strategy of state. All this is to illustrate the fact that when we depart from God's laws, we turn marriage, the central institution under, under God, into something that, instead of being a blessing, becomes a curse. Another factor about medieval marriage that we often fail to understand is the fact of laws of consanguinity. That means marrying within the forbidden degrees of marriage. Now, Leviticus 18 gives us the laws of consanguinity but the medieval church went far beyond the uh, law of Leviticus. As a rule, in the Middle Ages, one could not marry to the fourth degree. Now, since that puts it to a fairly remote cousin, it meant that uh, very careful genealogical records had to be kept. Why was this done? The church knew when this canon was established that they were going beyond Leviticus. But as far back as the days of St. Augustine and a little earlier, so we go back to the early church, what the church said was, simply this, that they were stretching the law of God, extending it for the welfare of mankind. Why? Were they valid in their thinking? Under normal circumstances, as in our culture today, the laws of Leviticus are more than valid. But we must remember that life then, especially with the fall of Rome, became village life, manor life. People living in a small community, in a limited area, without much travel, except by a handful. Let's look at a fact now that Thomas Sowell has called attention to. Thomas Sowell, in dealing with various migrant groups to the United States, has called attention to the fact that the Jewish communities, especially from Slavic countries, Poland in particular, who came to this country had a high degree of uh, physical defects and mental defects, very high degree. And it was because, especially in Poland, but in most of the Slavic countries, they lived in small villages and rarely went beyond its boundaries for generations. And as a result, everyone in the village was related to everyone else, so that they would be cousins several times over in this country because of outbreeding, those problems disappeared. The medieval church, for the welfare of mankind, that was the statement, had extended the degrees of consanguinity to sometimes more than the fourth generation, but normally 
to the fourth generation. And incidentally, the best article on this subject is in the old Catholic encyclopedia. It is true that very often there were papal dispensations making possible uh, sidestepping this rule in royal and other marriages, but by and large it was reasonably well enforced. However, in the modern era, after the Renaissance, these laws were set aside. The church's authority was collapsing. And the crowned heads of England began to intermarry to an appalling degree. The result was monarchy committed suicide. The number of insane people, deformed, defective people in the crowned heads of Europe, the royal families, became more and more numerous, and the monarchy less and less competent. It was not so much the pressure from below that forced constitutional government on various countries as the incompetence at the top that made it necessary. We hear something about some of the leading kings, but uh, we forget that so many of them were defective. In a Chalcedon report I wrote several years back, I went into this problem. I called attention to the fact that on the eve of uh, World War I, the number of defectives there were among the crowned heads and families of Europe, including one very important one, a Grand Duchess, I believe, in some Germanic country, who believed she was a grand piano made of glass, and therefore very fragile and to be treated with care. The Church created a revolution in the life of Europe through its laws of marriage. What has happened in the modern era since about 1700 has been a revolution in the attitude towards marriage, a progressive hostility to the biblical requirements. Since World War II, this revolution has come to a head, and the results have been devastating, very, very destructive of the life of nations. One of the things, too, that comes out in this book is how the church, by and large, was more mindful of people and their problems than uh, rulers and civil authorities were. One problem, for example, that the church dealt with, which I think is revelatory of this fact, is mantle children. Mantle children, a technical term from that era, uh, were children born of out of wedlock but not in adultery, whose parents subsequently married. The attitude of the church was that such children were made legitimate by marriage. What was required at the marriage ceremony was that the children be present with the parents and a mantle cast over them to include them in the ceremony and in the family, as it were. The interesting thing is that while the church insisted that these children were legitimate, the state insisted with equal vehemence that they were not, and this was a continuing problem.
incidentally, at that time, uh, the church did permit divorce, and it wasn't until about the 12th century that it began to prohibit divorce. It also allowed annulment on a number of grounds, including impotence. And we have here a rather pathetic extract from the Register of the Diocese of York in 1433 uh, concerning a man called John who was alleged by his wife to be impotent. And he was to be tested by several women. And I'll quote the evidence from the first. Quote, the same witness exposed her naked breasts, and with her hands warmed at the said fire, she held and rubbed the penis and testicles of the said John, and stirred him up in so far as she could to show his virility and potency, admonishing him for shame that he should then and there prove and render himself a man. And, she says, examined and diligently questioned, that the whole time aforesaid the said penis was scarcely three inches long, remaining without any increase or decrease, unquote. Then several other women, seven all told, tried this in turn, and they all cursed John for his failure and walked out, and divorce was granted. Not only did the state take a more hostile attitude on many such issues, but so did many people at large. For example, to become a mason in Germany, a man had to be legitimate. More than one line of work was barred to bastards. On the other hand, the church took the position that a man had to bring up all his children, whether legitimate or illegitimate. He had to bring them up and teach them a trade and be able to provide for them until they could provide for themselves. This was a very important fact because on most levels it made for some restraint in a man's behavior. Today, a man can beget illegitimate children and walk out and leave them. The girl bears the responsibility. Then, it was not the girl who bore the responsibility, but the man. As the father, as the man. And one which had a great deal to do with the stabilizing of the home. Well, by the later Middle Ages, of course, the whole climate uh, was changing. The church's rules on marriage were beginning to take hold. But as the Middle Ages began to wane and the Renaissance to dawn, things changed dramatically for the worse. Now on to another book and another subject. A very important book is Morgan O. Reynolds. R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S, Crime by Choice, an Economic Analysis, published 1985 by the Fisher Institute in Dallas, Texas. This is a very important work. The author and economist at Texas A&M speaks of the estrangement between law and morality. He calls attention to the fact that the three basic institutions are church, school, and family. And no matter what the state does, if these three are weak, you're going to have a problem you're going to have a growth of crime. And he says all three today are weak, the church, the family, and the school, and the result is a growing crime rate. 
In 99% of all crimes, no one ever goes to prison. He has an important section on guns and black and white collar crime, on parental authority and crime. He also goes after the sociologists and their absurdities in explaining crime. As he says, sociologists basically ignore or dismiss Willie Sutton's famous answer about why he robbed banks, because that's where the money is, unquote. They have all kinds of vague answers, trying to invent reasons for uh, crime. Moreover, he is a good historian as well. Let me quote this passage to you from page 84. The Wild West of 100 years ago is a good example of the deterrent effect of a population that was willing to protect itself. Guns were totally unregulated as were drugs, yet the homicide rate was only 10% of what it is today. Much of the West in the second half of the 19th century was beyond the reach of government, yet people managed well. Violence was low, at least as far as scholars can tell, relative to our cities today. A movie like High Noon has a preposterous theme, as does much of Hollywood's entertainment. Because the West was basically settled by men who were veterans of the Civil War, they were familiar with guns and killing. No three people could intimidate an entire western town as high noon portrayed it, unquote. A very important statement and very, very true. But we fail to appreciate that while stories are written about the wild days in Tombstone or Dodge City and Abilene and other frontier towns, we are not told that those wild days were for a few months to at most a year, that they were not as wild as our cities are today, and that very quickly churches were built in those cities, churchwomen and businessmen got together, and they brought in law and order. Today, what has happened is that since women have gotten the vote, now this is a matter of fact, and I'm not saying it's bad for them to have the vote, but since they have gotten the vote, they are more organized in such things as League of Women's Voters in political action, and less organized in grassroots social action, whether it is for education, or crime control, or relief, or anything else. And at the same time, businessmen today are by and large gutless. By and large, the business community cannot be counted on today to do anything for political reform or any kind of reform. And certainly it is no help to the churches. And that's the big difference. Then people meant business with their faith and they applied it. This is a very important work. He calls attention, by the way, to the damage that liberals have done to the law. He calls attention to the fact of police corruption, how small it is, and how exaggerated most accounts of it are. It's an excellent book, and very important. He says, by the way, that a society's first line of defense against crime is the ordinary citizen's sense of personal morality, unquote. So, until you return people to a moral stance, you're not going to affect the crime situation by passing more laws or pushing more onto the police. They cannot do what only the conscience of people will do. 
Well, another book very recently published by Thomas H. Landis and Richard M. Quinn, Jesse Jackson and the Politics of Race, published by Jameson Books, Ottawa, Illinois, for 1795. A very, very interesting book about Jesse Jackson and his hypocrisy. A man who began his career with a lie about his closeness to Martin Luther King, whose personal finances indicate that he certainly doesn't practice charity. He gives very little to any charitable cause. He is a rabble-rouser, and he is, by and large, a person who more and more black leaders regard as an opportunist. The idea that he has attempted to inculcate is that blacks are not permitted, especially black reporters, to criticize the black leadership or to seek out stories which might prove embarrassing to the movement. Otto Scott and I were discussing this book recently, and important as this book is, and it is very important about press news, about the press, and a good deal more, it misses the boat at one key point, which the title seemed to indicate it was going to deal with. Jesse Jackson and the Politics of Race is the title. The Politics of Race. What is it? Why is Jesse Jackson so close to Farrakhan, the nation of Islam? He certainly does not share their ideas, that is, beyond a certain point. Why then has he been so hesitant, so reluctant, to criticize a man who has, on a number of occasions, been militantly hostile to the Jews. This seems especially curious given the fact that Jackson and others have had a great deal of help from Jewish liberals. I think we are going to miss the boat as far as coming to grips with the situation in the black community a la Farrakhan and Jesse Jackson. And then we can understand why the other black leaders have a problem, why it is so difficult for them to make headway against Farrakhan and Jackson. The Politics of Race, the subtitle, points us in the direction. Until now, there has been one group in the United States that has had a privileged status in that it has constituted, as it were, a nation within a nation. This has been the Jewish community. The situation of the Jews in this country is one, of course, which other minorities have sought to gain and have all failed. But today, the black community is striving for it, or an important segment within the community. The Nation of Islam, Farrakhan's group, and Jesse Jackson and the circle around him. To have, as it were, a kind of a dual status, the same status that everyone has as an American, and yet an immunity from criticism on the grounds of being black. And this is precisely what Jackson has worked for and what he has demanded of the movement of all blacks, the new law, as uh, some have termed it, that blacks are not allowed to criticize blacks, and blacks as a body are to be immune and beyond criticism. An element of the leadership in the Jewish community has felt that way. Rightly or wrongly, they have. The Jewish community at large has probably been indifferent to it, as it has 
towards other issues. And the bulk of the blacks are probably indifferent to the same thing now on the part of Farrakhan and Jesse Jackson. But claiming this kind of immunity, they are hostile to the Jews because they are claiming, or they're an element in their leadership is claiming the same immunity. So this problem will not go away. The complaints that are voiced against the Jews and their stores in the ghetto areas are fanciful. They have no basis in fact. By and large, these merchants have leaned over backwards to be helpful. The reason is Jesse Jackson and Farrakhan believe that the Jews have a privileged status and they want that privileged status. So for them, it's a battle for privilege. It is interesting that the foreword to this book was written by Ralph Abernathy, King's successor. And it is to be hoped that men who do not agree with Jesse Jackson will succeed in gaining power. On now, very briefly, to another book which is very, very important, but hardly something that I could discuss in an hour. This is a book that one of you, Phil Spielman, gave to me by Kenneth Minogue, M-I-N-O-G-U-E, Alien Powers, The Pure Theory of Ideology, a book published by St. Martin's Press in 1985. Really an outstanding work because it tells us what the main motivating force of our era is of the last two centuries at least. We could say from a Christian perspective that what he's talking about is a product of evolution. That because of evolution, we no longer see mankind living in a world of harmony of interests, but in a world with a conflict of interests. And the pure theory of ideology is one of total oppression. Everybody is trying to oppress everybody, and therefore the working class had better gain power and oppress others because domination, oppression, is the key to history. And the business of life, therefore, is liberation. The motive force, the motor of history is to gain power and to dominate others. So liberation is to overthrow this domination. Well, at the same time, this means that no matter what anyone does to say, we're not trying to dominate, we're trying to uh, help others, are through that help trying to gain domination. There can be no relationship except domination, oppression. He quotes, for example, the Leeds Revolutionary feminists who have proclaimed that heterosexual intercourse is an act of great symbolic significance by which the oppressor enters the body of the oppressed, unquote. This kind of insanity he documents page after page in one group after another. For example, Kate Millett, citing feminists again, calls the oppressive system patriarchy and says, and I quote, it is interesting that many women do not recognize themselves as discriminated against. No better proof could be found of the totality of their conditioning, unquote. There's no way you can win. No matter how much you try to help any other group, it's proof 
that it is oppression and that you're disguising your oppression. To quote again from Minogue, the oppression of women was often understood by men and women alike as the protection of women. It is to changes in public sentiment of this very kind that states evidently respond, and hence it is absurd to take such changes as evidence of the essential character of the state itself, unquote. There are no way there are no ways of ever proving that you're innocent if once you accept the fact that the only relationship between people is the desire to oppress it's a very important book language itself becomes an instrument of power in the hands of these people and the net result is that it creates really a will to suicide in a culture. Now, very briefly, on to a couple of other things. First of all, an older book that I just read, an English book, Britain's Nature Reserves. This was first published in 1957, and it is, in a sense, a guidebook, as well as an account of the history and natural habitat of all the reserves, nature reserves, we would call them national parks of England. In one part of this book about field mice and moles and how we mustn't let men come in to harm their habitat, and too much damage has been done already, they say. So the goal is ultimately to uh, preserve nature for nature's sake. In the conclusion, we have this sentence, and I quote, our aim must be to hold our nature uh, reserves in trust for both that is, men and women, but above all for the animals and plants which have nowhere else to go, unquote. The same kind of opinion I found in another book which I just read this past week, America, the Vanishing, Rural Life and the Price of Progress, edited by Samuel R. Ogden, published by the Stephen Green Press in 1969. The book, of course, has a great deal about how marvelous the country was before man came to it. And how rich and uh, lush everything was, uh, wildlife, and so on. But their own uh, accounts give the lie to this because there was no underbrush in the forests, no grass, because the forests were so thick that not only the lower branches of the trees died from lack of sunlight and dropped off, but also, no grass could grow. The result was there was very little in the way of vegetation, not many deer. In fact, the deer started to multiply when the white man came and began to clear the forests. Grass grew, and there was more for things to feed on. I encountered, by the way, in one such book, just in the past week or two, a statement that in those days, the turkeys in some part of the parts of the South were as big as six feet tall. There is no limit to the gullibility of environmentalists. But the thing that uh, I want to cite is this statement by Hal Borland, one of the contributors. And it's in the summary section of the book. The sentence is this, fundamentally, 
man is a minor creature on the face of the earth. Fundamentally, man is a minor creature on the face of the earth. Quite a statement. And it tells us a great deal about the environmentalist movement. It is not interested in conservation. The conservation movement was old before these people were born. Its mainspring is the hatred of man. The desire to put down man, especially Christian man, because many of them are emphatic that it has been somehow Christian civilization that has created all these problems and evils. As a result, as in feminism, so in environmentalism, we are dealing with anti-Christianity, with a venomous, an insane and psychopathic hatred of life with a will to suicide. So we have to be wary of giving aid and comfort to these movements by feeling that, well, there is some good in them. No doubt there is. Outside of Satan and outside of hell, there is no such thing as pure evil, although sometimes people do get fairly close to it. But there is no reason why, because some things have some good in them, that we should surrender the cause of truth for such a compromised situation and a fundamentally evil group. Well, our time is up. I have a good minute.